Afghanistan, Algeria, Armenia, Egypt, India, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Kurdistan, Lebanon, Pakistan, Palestine, Syria, Turkey, Jordan. <laughs> Voices from Calcutta to Casablanca. Voices of struggle. Voices of change. Bringing you news and analysis of people's struggles throughout Southwest Asia and Northern Africa. My name is Nima Adlan. I'm glad to be with you this afternoon. Today's show is part of a series of shows from Swana Region Radio Collective Roundtable Discussions on Democratic Confederalism. The participants are Professor David Lloyd of UC Riverside, Professor Hamoud Salih, Associate Dean at California State University, Dominguez Hills, and Ankine Antram and myself, Nima Adlan, in an interview with Janet Beale, a social ecologist and author of numerous books and articles on social ecology, as well as a book on Mori Bookchin's life and ideas. Janet Beale studied and collaborated with the late philosopher and political theorist for many years. In these series, we explored the life of Bookchin, his ideas, and in particular his influence on the jailed Kurdish leader Ojalan, or as he is known to Kurds, Apple. Ojalan was jailed after his 1999 kidnapping in Kenya and has been in solitary confinement for years as the sole inmate of Imrali Prison, a Turkish island prison. In recent months, even his lawyers have not been allowed to see him and any inquiries about his condition has not been responded to or acknowledged by Turkish officials. There are daily protests by Kurds for his release and freedom throughout the world. Bookchin's ideas have influenced Apo and Kurdish regions of Syria who have been fighting ISIS and their supporters for more than three years now. Kurds began to adopt democratic confederalism as a model for the liberated regions of northern Syria and claim it can be a solution for other conflicted regions. Turkish oppression of Kurds and its attacks on the Kurds have continued, not only in Turkey but also in northern Syria or Western Kurdistan, or as it's called by Kurds, Rojava, the Kurdish word for West, Rojava. After the Kurds defeated ISIS, they are faced now with more attacks by Turkish forces or their allies on the Kurdish cantons in northern Syria. Uh, Janet, thanks for being with us. Can you tell us how the relationship or the contacts between Ojalan and Bukchin was developed? Yeah, okay. So, as we know, Mr. Ojalan was was uh, arrested and sentenced to death in 1998-99, but the death sentence was commuted to life imprisonment, solitary confinement on an island in the Sea of Marmara, in a prison built that was basically he was the only prisoner, heavily guarded. It's right, it's far away from any land, so he was very, very public isolated. enemy number one. Was, <laughs> isolated. He was treated like public, yeah, <laughs> very isolated, and he couldn't have visitors and really could only talk to his lawyers and it was through his through his lawyers that he communicated with the movement and he had some time on his hands as one might imagine so he wanted to do some reading so he through the lawyers asked i mean and this is what i've been told right i don't know this for a fact i wasn't there i didn't see it but this is what i've been told that he asked for the comrades to recommend books for him he wanted to it's not just to pass the time but to think about the Kurdish movement itself, to think where it should go, what he had already—I don't want to—he had already been thinking about democracy as early as the as the early 1990s. So it's not that it's not that he learned about democracy from Bookchin. Of course not. He had been thinking about that for a while in terms of what he called a democratic nation. Um, but he wanted to, yeah, see see what Westerns and and other and other Middle Eastern theorists were talking about. He was very ecumenical. It was he that basically crossed <laughs> geographical barriers in his reading, and there was you know, hundreds. Of, they brought him hundreds of books. And meanwhile, Bookchin's works, especially Urbanization Without Cities and Ecology of Freedom, had been translated into Turkish in the mid 1990s. So someone, and I'm told it was a a, a Kurdish feminist, recommended that Bookchin's books be put in whatever box was sent out to Imrali Islands for him to read. And as he was going through them, I'm sure he got many ideas from many places, but he was particularly struck by Bookchin's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for the reasons that I described, um, the bottom-up polity, the libertarian municipalism, the confederal, the confederal project seemed very, very suited to uh, a new Kurdish goals, he thought, um, 
he, the, he, he was interested in the ecological dimension he was, that Brookshin talked about, with the small-scale decentralized settlement patterns. And he was also very interested in Bookshin's critique of hierarchy, it seems. Bookshin had, um, as an anarchist, had been opposed to hierarchy and domination. That means in all forms. And, and he particularly identified, you know, the earliest hierarchies as gerontocracies, patriarchy, warriors, chiefs. Um, he, Bookchin made a lot, made a big study of the, the development of hierarchy and domination culminating in the nation state in more recent times. Um, and he, this is what he, what he did in his book, The Ecology of Freedom. Um, Mr. Erdogan was interested in that, but particularly in the, um, the, the, the emphasis on the, 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 the domination of women, of patriarchy, as, and he singled that out as, in some ways, the most consequential form of hierarchy and domination to emerge because he thought he developed a theory that all of the rest of all the other systems of domination depended essentially from the beginning on patriarchy. And in this case, he actually diverged from Bookchin, who did not single out patriarchy in this way. Bookchin was opposed, would have been opposed, was opposed to all hierarchies. But Erdogan singled out patriarchy. And I think this is also part of the circumstances, due to the circumstances in the PKK, um, which was, was mobilizing people of both genders and in, encouraging women to participate as, as equally with men from, from quite, quite early on. Um, I'm reading the, the um, biography, um, memoir of Sakine Jantis now. Correct. That's that's. I was just going to mention that because she is the lady that actually was one of Ojan's uh, compatriots, and uh, they basically started the PKK uh, together. And she and two other Kurdish activists were uh, assassinated in uh, in Paris a few years back, 2015. 2013, yeah, 2014 or 2013, yeah, yeah. 2013, yeah. 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 Um, they were, this is, this is, so, and that's the early 90s, so that's what, 30 years ago? The 20, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, that's decades ago. Yeah. Um, 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 so it's, it's quite a, quite a, quite a, a established phenomenon now in the Kurdish movement, the equal participation of women, and so that, I think that may have also contributed to Mr. Erjalan's focus on the need to overthrow patriarchy. Absolutely. So, yes, yeah, so you asked about contact. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just interested to see uh, how did you get contacted by the Kurds in Rojava, and and um, I'm assuming uh, you didn't go to Istanbul to get to <laughs> Rojava, I suppose, um, unless you were part of ISIS, you could have just walked in with them, I suppose. <laughs> Wait a second. We, well, let me, how did let you me get there? Let me just talk about the the, the Bushin contact. I, I was there as part of a delegation in 2014, but let me tell you the exciting part. In April of 2004, I sat down in front of my to open my email. I shared an email account with Bookchin, and there was a letter from a German Kurdish solidarity activist saying that Mr. Erdogan, he thought it would be a good idea for Bookchin to have a dialogue with Mr. Erdogan, and would Bookchin be interested? And I'll never forget that day, I must say. <laughs> um, we were, it was, um, we, Bookchin and I were both very startled by this request, but I have to say also that this is 2004, two, th- two years before Bookchin died. And by the end of his life, he was tired and disappointed. He'd been advocating the ideas for his entire adult life and had not gained any traction in the United States or in Europe and was very discouraged and disappointed. And then here was a man in the Middle East saying he was interested in his ideas and Bookchin was, oh, and he was nice. He was, he was, he was pleased, but he had been, he was too sick and weak and disappointed to, to have the dialogue that the, the comrades in in Germany had proposed. So, but he wrote a very nice letter saying, you know, it would be here are the books of mine that have been translated into Turkish. Maybe Mr. Erdogan would like to read them. So they the the interlocutors gave this letter to the lawyers who gave it to Mr. Erdogan, and he actually wrote back, knowing his letter would go right to Murray, and said, "Well, I've already read all these books. I consider myself a good student of yours." 
I consider myself a social ecologist. That these are the <laughs> that, that's the label that that um, Bookchin gave for his ideas. Um, you can read these letters. They're uh, they're published online now. I can give you the reference later. Yeah, definitely. But anyway, we need to talk about the books and uh, that for later. But but please go on. Thank you. Yeah. So so Bookchin was again. He was also very pleased to to get this response and said, "Well, uh, you know." I really think that the Kurdish movement is in good hands with you as their as their leader, Mr. Ojalan, and but I'm too sick and tired now to have a dialogue with you, but I hope it goes well, and I hope you achieve your aim of, of achieving this decentralized, democratized society that we both are very dear, they're very dear to both of us. And so this email went to, one of the, one of the comrades it went to was a man named Oliver Contney, who was on his way at that moment to a, to a PKK Congress. He was in Lebanon en route, and he was staying in a hotel, and this email from Bookchin came, um, you know, salute, basically saluting the PKK. And, and, and this was, this was, this was a good development because, you know, the, they, they, Ergelon had reached out to others too, who were just not interested at all, you know. But to get a response from Bookchin, that meant something. So Oliver Contney printed it out, and he put it in his pocket, and he went out to the to, to the mountains, the Condal Mountains, to the PKK Congress, and he he thought they're going to be interested in this, and but the fight was still going on um, over whether to give up Marxism, Leninism, and the and the goal of a nation state, and whether to shift to to these new ideas, and it was it was it it, it took about I my understanding is it took about five years for the for the PKK to finally to go through the whole change and, and transition and to decide on democratic confederalism, but. Um, and, and this was, they were still in the middle of it at this point. But, um, so Oliver hands the email to someone who's running the Congress and say, what, can we read this to the, aloud to the assembly? And somebody, one of the old, one of the old warriors said, oh, what do we need with an American anarchist who has 50 followers? We could do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the women actually who supported this shift, this shift, that the, the supported, you know, bringing Bookchin's ideas into the movement, and so there was a woman running the Congress, and she took the email from from Oliver and translated it into Turkish and read it out loud at the Congress, and it, there was huge applause. Everybody was very happy to hear from it. So, so it had a it had a good effect. And then in 2006, after Murray died, the PKK Congress wrote a beautiful tribute to him, saying, you know, we 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 salute. The great social scientist of the 20th, 20th century, Murray Bookchin, who showed the importance of ecology and democracy. And we, it is our intention to form the first Bookchin societies on this planet. Hmm. And, and, um, they, it was just the most amazing and beautiful tribute to him that one could imagine. I only wish he'd been alive to, <laughs> to hear it. Um, but, and it was, and, and so even though Bookchin had, 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 had declined you know, had been unable to participate in the debate with discussion with Erdogan. He continued to propagate these views. In 2005, he issued a declaration of democratic confederalism once the PKK d- arrived at, at, at this decision. And, and in the next years, the different parts of the Kurdish, of Kurdistan, especially in southeastern Turkey and in northern Syria, adopted democratic confederalism as their goal and began, even under conditions of persecution and repression, to create these bottom-up institutions, to create councils and committees and assemblies. And, you know, when I see American, you know, revolutionaries in other parts of the world today complaining about the difficulties of organizing, you know, they just need to look at what, what was done in, in, in Turkey and Syria. I mean, these, these people were being arrested and thrown into prison and tortured if they were found out, you know, and yet they, they, committed, were committed to building these institutions anyway. It was, it's just, Kind of heart-wrenching to think about. Well, one, one thing that's enormous risks they took. One, one to thing that's been interesting, me, Janet, is um, Bookchin's interest in the sort of anarchist formations that took place under the conditions of the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. And I've heard it said that in fact uh, Rojava represents the the closest thing that we've had in many many decades to what was able to happen during the conditions of the Spanish Civil War, the, the formation that he writes about actually in um, a, a little essay on anarchism and power in the Spanish Revolution in, in his collection, The Next Revolution. He, he talks about the opportunity that there was there to establish a, a fully developed anarchist um, 
an anarchist uh, articulation of power in in a way that would actually lead to a kind of democratic federal confederalism and i'm i'm curious if you have any reflections on on how it is that precisely the conditions you're just talking about of, of civil war of massive oppression and so forth uh the fight against fascism in spain the fight against baathist uh, assadism in in syria are capable of sheltering the kinds of social experiment. Is it because at that point the state breaks down and people actually have a, a space, however however harried and however besieged they may be, to to create alternatives? Oh yes, I think so. But actually, it's um, Bookchin wrote about a whole book about the Spanish phenomenon called the Spanish Anarchist, and then in his his master work of about the, the popular movements in Western revolutions, the Third Revolution, a, volume, a great part of Volume 4 is devoted to the Spanish Revolution and to a minute examination of the kinds of bottom-up institutions that they formed. Um, not just the CNT, but the, 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 the way the militants organized committees and, and councils and, and um, um, having been educated. They weren't spontaneous because these things, you know, they're, uh, when a revolutionary moment comes around, people don't always know what to do. There have been there are crises that sometimes develop, and then people come out into the streets and they topple a dictator, and then, then what do we do? They look at each other and say, "Now what do we do? You know, we've got rid of them. What's next?" Well, the Spanish, the Spaniards in the 30s had been informed by anarchism, you know, how to create these bottom-up institutions, and that and the parallel development. You know, in in um, northern Syria, especially, was that you know, when by the time the Assad regime withdrew in the in July 2012, these institutions, and not only the Kurdish movement, not only knew about these institutions because Erdogan had taught them, but because but they had, they also had been building them, as I said, even under conditions of torture. So that that when the revolutionary moment came around, the crucial moment. They came out in the streets in Kobani in, in July of 2012. They weren't just looking at each other and saying, now what do we do? They knew what to do. They were already doing it. And it's just, it was just a, the state decamped, the, 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 the regime administrators decamped, even the landowners decamped, leaving, leaving space for these institutions to, to proliferate, which, you know, they, from, as soon as, you know, the, the, the rubber hit the road, as soon as the, as soon as that revolution, as soon as the state left, they, um, you know, my friend Erdan Eboya told me that the original base unit in in uh, in northern Syria in Rojava was the neighborhood that was going to be the base unit for this confederal system um, that I talked about with sending you know mandated delegates uh, to upper tiers. But there was so much enthusiasm and so much interest on the part of the people. People were pouring, having had no political power for so long, they poured into the streets and they actually had to form another unit below the neighborhood called the, the, the commune, which is at the level of the neighborhood, at the residential street. That's a, that's a kind of a, a settlement pattern that we don't have here so much, but in the Middle East, the residential street, it means like, it means like 300 households or so. And they, that was, they slipped in a, a, a base unit below the base, <laughs> right? Called right. the commune. And that's where the assemblies were. That's a post-July 1912 development. So that in Rojava, as it came to be called, it's the, it's the, 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 the tiers of the confederal system are the commune at the res- level of the residential street, the neighborhood, which is like a district in a city, the district, which is the city and the surrounding areas, and the canton, and there were three cantons originally formed, and they've, they've, they have, you know, and I also have to say that they, the, the, the Kurdish movement had done an enormous study of revolutionary history and social history up there in those Kandil Mountains. It's, it's like a little university. These are not naive people, um, you know, uh, who need to be spoon-fed ideas from the West. These, pe- these are people who educated themselves in their own veritable university. Up there in the up there in the Kandil Mountains, you know, in between drills with their AK-47s, you know, they 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 they're they're not naive about history and 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 about the problems of social revolutions and about the problems that other revolution Western revolutions had encountered, and they saw that this was their moment, and they knew they were savvy enough to make the best possible use of it, and it continues to this day, and I hope well, we'll I think definitely. I mean, certainly, this is something that that one sees a lot in colonial situations where people who are not served by the state have had to create 
structures alongside the state or outside the state um, where they they manage their affairs for themselves in in maybe even in rudimentary ways but th- there are actually traditions i think uh, you know in my own case i've studied the irish situation where you know in in, in the period of the war against against Britain in the 19 teens and 20s they actually constituted soviets um which seemed to well. spring out of nowhere but were actually based on common pra- commoning practices that that had existed in Ireland for decades and decades before that so i i'm wow. i'm just one little question and then we have to take a break for a moment but do you happen to know how Bookchin's work got translated into Turkish who who were the organizations that would have actually been interested in his work yeah well there was a whole flowering of of, of publication of leftist western leftist writings in Turkey in the 1990s and there was a group in in Istanbul a group of social ecologists in Istanbul who were looking who who were eager to participate in, the tr- in translation. And then there was an anarchist publisher in Canada called Black Rose Books that had published some of Murray's works, and they, they were in touch, um, found, found publishers in Turkey. I remember, I remember the, um, they, went, they, sent, they sent the contract to Murray for the, where he gave them the right and gave them the rights and you know, got a little royalty check for it. You know, but, um, and I remember, <laughs> I remember actually literally dropping it in the mailbox and saying to myself, Turkey is a very authoritarian country. How can they? How can they even think about having social ecology there? Huh? That was precisely my interest. Yes. So, so once again, we have this this idea that there's, I, I there's an autocratic state. Uh, just uh, let's take a quick break. One second, and I'll answer that question about Turkey. This is uh, KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, and this is Swana Region Radio Collective. Welcome back. Uh, and uh, we are uh, speaking with uh, Janet Beale, author of uh, Life of Mori Bookchin, life partner of Mori Bookchin. Uh, I can call him the philosopher. Uh, Janet, thanks for being with us. Let me go back to your um, your my, my response or my interjection about Turkey. Uh, Turkish left has always been one of the strongest uh, in in that area. They're very ardent, uh, and uh, it kind of explains why you would see an interest in Bookchin's ideas after the collapse of the Soviet Union. uh, Mm. They are right next door. They have a long history. The Ottomans and the Russians were at war for many, many years, and and in that, uh, I guess, geography, there is some history there. And uh, uh, we were speaking about this earlier, and and uh, for PKK, for the longest time, uh, had uh, many, many non-Kurds, Turkish, uh, uh, Turkish nationals or Turks, who were part of PKK, supported Ojalan, supported the Kurdish movement. So that kind of explains why they would be interested in, in, in an alternative point of view, I think. Mm. Now, if, mm. if, if you don't mind, I want to get back to uh, one of my questions that uh, you haven't told us, which I'm really interested in from my perspective. Uh, I wanted to know, how did you get to uh, Rojava? By the way, Rojava in Kurdish means west, and that's why they call western Kurdistan or what, northern part of Syria, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and and if I may interject, that's it. It was called it was called Rojava, and it's easy just to call it that. But actually, it's no longer that's no longer an official name for it because the they Kurds there are trying to be very inclusive. Correct. There are many different ethnicities there, but to call it Rojava means it, it, it sounds like imposing a Kurdish name on it. So it's called the Democratic Federal System of Northern Syria now. That's the official Correct. name, but that's a mouthful. And I'm just going <laughs> to refer to it as Rojava. In a, in a, it, just as a, as a shorthand, as a way of speaking, but please know that I mean, I don't mean any Kurdish um, chauvinism by doing that. <laughs> I'm just, um, I, I, it's just a shorthand for the democratic federal system, okay? And I'm sure that's what you all mean too. So, um, because, um, you know, in the, in the social contract of Rojava, it identifies all of the different ethnic groups that live there. Uh, it identifies, it, it starts out by by a statement of the the uh, inclusiveness of of the different ethnic groups and names the the three official languages Kurdish Arabic and Arab I think Aramaic. Syrian yeah, Aramaic Syriac yeah. and mm-hmm. again this is another another um, it's a um, development post bookshin development in this ideology is the enormous emphasis on ethnic inclusivity ethnic and religious inclusivity which you know bookshin sort of I guess in America, the so-called melting pot sort of took for granted, but it's something that needed to be affirmed and stated over and over again. I was there um, 
as part of um, an academic, what's called the academic delegation in um, December of 2014, I was privileged to, to be uh, to accompany David Graeber, Eidek Iglad, Dilar Dierick, um, and some other just remark. Uh, Thomas Miley. Um, number of there were maybe 13 of us at the maximum. We were there for almost oh, about about 11 days, um, and we. Um, yeah, we, we flew to Erbil, and then we made our way to the Tigris River, um, crossing over in a little red metal pontoon boat, red metal boat, um, across the Tigris, and we were greeted on the other, on the far shore by young women carrying Kalashnikovs with huge smiles on their faces, with just enormously welcoming to us. And I have to say that, um, it was a remarkable, just remarkable to visit. We spoke to um, all sorts of political actors, people who had been active in the revolution. I was privileged to meet people from Tevdem, like um, Aldar Helil. Um, met met um, um, women of the what was then called Yakiti Star, the women's movement that had done so much to organize um, under the Assad regime because the regime didn't didn't think women would be as dangerous as men, so didn't arrest them as much. The Yakutia Star women had done most, much of the organizing early on. Um, was privileged to, to meet with um, um, uh, people who were teaching Kurdish language, who were working hard to 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 revive Kurdish, the study of Kurdish language and literature. Now, finally, they were free to do that. We met with people from the Assyrian community. We met with Arabs, people who were who, and we talked to them about about what their life was like under this so-called Kurdish, new Kurdish regime, and, and all the, they said, we don't have any problems with it. Our complaints are with Daesh, you know, or with ISIS. Um, we went to a, a, a number of academies. You see, in, in, where, where, where ideology is taught, now, this was very striking to me because I'm, I'm an American, and we don't think very much of ideology or theory here in the United States. We're very practical-minded people. Um, just and there's a lot of distrust of ideology as somehow something alien or foreign. In the in, in it's very different in the Middle East. You know, among the, the Kurdish movement, it was important. It's not just that it, it, no, you don't window shop in ideology. You know, the way there in a very casual way, the way people do here. It's it's you have to decide on what is the right ideology. Make fine tune it. Make sure you get it right. Role of women, n- not just in the fight, in the YPG-controlled areas in general. How did you see this, and, and what effect does it have on the region as a whole? Did you see that, the dynamics of it? I can't speak for the region as a whole. I really don't know. I think the women in the region as a whole are a sleeping giant, and that they could become like the the, the meeting ground, that their problems their, and their wishes to overcome the patriarchy very severe patriarchy in the Middle East. They're potentially an enormous force for liberation in that region. One thing that was very impressive to me was the outreach they did. The women's groups formed, you know, what we call battered women's shelters here. They formed clinics, health, women's health clinics, schools for women, educational institutions, um, their own series of councils parallel to the men. So, you know, parallel to the the council structure that I described before, which is mixed, mixed gender, there's also a parallel structure of women's councils with the same four tiers to address women's issues. And, you know, this is a part of the world where women were subjected to underage marriage, to marriage as children, uh, had to submit to polygamy, had to submit to honor killings. You know, if they were, if a woman is sexually assaulted by a man, not her husband, it's considered her fault. So she has to either be, be and that's a stain on the family, so she has to be killed. These are called so-called honor killings. These are all banned now, banned now in Rojava. Women are basically, on paper, able to do anything that men can do. They're not confined to the home. They don't even have to get married. They can own property. Well, I don't know about owning. The issue, whole issue of property is a little vague in my mind. They are political actors. They're full political actors the way men are. And no group, there has to be a 40% a quorum for women's participation for any group or, or organization or institution to have validity, to have legitimacy, for and, the decisions to have legitimacy. And, and, so, their, and their role in the fight, I mean, the, the, the Kurdish women's role in the fight is, is, I mean, it's historical. It hasn't, uh, it's unprecedented, I think. And that makes a big difference, I think, 
in in the dynamics of that region, like you mentioned, the sleeping giants, the women, that has given them a wake up uh, at least tried to, I think. Do you agree? Oh yes, it's. I think women are, are, are somewhere between a third and a, and a half of the fighting forces um, of the of the SDF, which is the, which I think you know what that is. That's kind of a um, it, it was created by the anti ISIS coalition to to um, placate Turkey, so because the coalition couldn't be seen to actually be aiding Kurds, so they had to form a unit a, a group called the SDF, which consisted of Kurds and Arabs and you know many other different ethnic many other different groups. Um, but of course, the YPG and the YPJ were not just Kurdish anyway. <laughs> um, we were we went when we went to a, um, a military academy. Um, yeah, there were women there with with hijabs on. You know, every now and then you would see you know, the Kurdish women with their heads would be there, but then there would be an Arab woman with a hijab. So they were they were uh, ethnically integrated units as well. Janet, um, do you have and, any and, any idea how people in in Rojava, who have forged the system of democratic federalism, are thinking about how they will deal with the imperial forces, both Russia and and the United States, who are seeking to direct uh, the outcome of events in the civil war. With Russia obviously supporting Bashar al-Assad, the U.S. is increasingly seeming to accept uh, his restoration, so to speak. And also, at this moment, um, I gather Russian and Syrian forces are pushing ISIS out of a considerable part of the region so that it looks likely that there will be a confrontation fairly soon between the SDF and and Syrian forces. Do do you have any sense of how they're talking about this and how they're making contingency plans for the next phase, so to speak? Um, I think that they. I think that their plan, their strategy, is to is to expand uh, their democratic system as much as possible. So, as they have, remember I talked about they originally just three cantons. Right. Yes. Well, as the SDF has liberated Arab villages and other villages from ISIS, um, they've they've given them a choice, to, an option to create their own council system. You know the way. Uh, uh, you know, modeled on the Rojava one, and that, so that's been done in, I think, in Takba and in Manbij, and in other places, other in, in different villages that have been liberated. So actually, the system is spreading, and that's another reason it's not called Rojava anymore, you know, because it's it's spreading so far beyond. I think there's there's a, um, a potential self-government for Raqqa has been formed um, by civilians that would that would um, include the same the same kinds of self-governing democratic structures. Um, Raqqa, I presume, will be liberated fairly soon, and and we'll see what what happens with that. Um, but I think their strategy is to is to you know extend their system because look, they see the their the, the, their system that Rojava model as as a model for all of Syria, as a way of democratizing the whole country. They're not trying to create a separate enclave. They see themselves very much as part of Syria, but they want Syria to become a democratic place. And they're highly self-conscious of modeling how it, how it's done, and that's it's that's through self-rule and by inclusivity. And, and I have to say, this was one of the most moving things to me when I was there was the repeated emphasis I heard on no revenge taking. You know, the the military, the internal security forces, the police, the, which are actually called the Asayish, the different different groupings. Military forces are continually told no revenge taking, and you would think that that would be a very normal human impulse. You know, after Kurds have been repressed for so many decades in these by by Arabs in Syria, to to want to okay payback time. We're in charge now. No, no, no. They're very conscious of not doing that because they're trying to show that it's possible for people for different ethnic and religious groups to live together together in harmony. And in order to do that, they renounce revenge taking. So, so that's this. That's this. I mean, and then of course there's a military strategy, which I, you know, I, I read reports like you do, and I don't really know what's going to happen. But their ultimate long-term strategy is to win over the hearts and minds of the people, so to speak, um, by by showing them how to how to live, how to govern themselves harmoniously. And I think that's the, the biggest long-term strategy. It's di- it's disappointing that. That um, the Americans and others in the coalition have done so little to to provide humanitarian aid 
Um, Rojava is still under embargo. It still can't trade with the outside. It's they're still very much left to their own devices, um, and that's disappointing because they have a huge refuge. They have many, many refugees in Rojava because people from other parts of Syria know to go there because they'll be safe there and taken care of. Absolutely, um, that's, a, that's a huge it would refugee be, it's issue. Hugely disappointing that that they have not been assisted in this remarkable humanitarian endeavor of taking care of the refugees there. Yeah. I, b- I believe the number of displaced in, in, in Syria is about either 4 million or I, I've, I, I think I remember somebody saying that even 7 million internally displaced people in, yeah. in Syria. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, decentralization. That, that's, that's the model, correct? And that's a hope that uh, they have for that uh, uh, Rojava or the northern Syrian uh, conf- uh, Federalist uh, areas. Mm-hmm. Now, is that too far-fetched? I mean, is that a model for the region, maybe possibly for other areas that have similar conflicts? I mean, I, c- I can take that on and, and look at other areas uh, that have similar issues. Do, do you think that's, that's something that's being placed there? I mean, is that decentralization working uh, for, for that area? Well, it, it's working in the north. Um, uh, as far as as far as I know, and again, you know, I like I say, I was I was there. I, I, but when I was there, I, we we interviewed political different political actors, and you know, I I was very conscious of being um, uh, of, of 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 the history of you know Potemkin Potemkin villages that Stalin. Oh, you know, of, that, that are, are are we being shown everything? Can we really trust what we're being told here? I didn't want to. Um, um, be 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 naive myself, you know. Um, but really, there's just no sign at all that that I could see that there's anything dashedly going on behind the scenes. That it really is what it appears to be. Um, that they really don't have political prisoners. Um, that there are people from other parties who are in prisons, but but not for political, you know, uh, not not over political issues, but because they've committed common crimes, you know. And there was a lot of confusion about that with different human rights reports but it really does seem to they really do seem to be you know have their hearts on their sleeves here that they are that they are what they appear to be and you know you're asking is it far-fetched well would you have said we would might would we would have thought it was far-fetched back in 2000 you know and yet they've done it um they're 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 showing the rest of us how and i just have to believe that if it can be done there it can be done in other parts of syria as well um but but these are a lot of education, of course, would have to be done. Uh, Janet, um, um, you, you may not want to grasp this particular nettle, but in, in thinking of this as a you know a model or, or a model of a solution for for Syria, the Israel-Palestine conflict is also one that's completely bound up with questions of the state. I mean, we have a Jewish state for a Jewish people, which discriminates against its Palestinian population. We have the desire for domination of the whole region. But the solution is always expressed in terms of will it be a one state or will it be a two state, and never thinking outside that. Do you, do you have any hope that a notion of democratic federalism within which Jews and Arabs and, Drew- and Druze and atheists and people of any persuasion could actually forge similar kinds of democratic federal entities. You know, I'm I'm really I really need to confine myself to talking about things I know about. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not, I don't feel I don't feel competent to address that question. That's okay. Um, no, we we, you know, we do cover the whole region in our shows, yeah. and it, it yeah. of course it strikes me immediately that that you know. Yeah. We are constantly thinking in terms of states and state-oriented solutions, and maybe we need to get outside of that conception altogether. It's something, certainly something to think about, but yeah. I, I can't comment. I don't have, I'm not informed enough to comment on possibilities. There. No problem. Janet, this is Hamoud. Uh, I want to get you back to your topic, uh, but in a broader sense, in a sense what David was asking. Can you tell us a little bit or, or describe uh, the relationship between uh, the, uh, or, uh, the Kurds in general and women in particular have with other groups in the Arab world, 
one gets a sense uh, that the Kurdish question to a large degree has been a Kurdish question, not an Arab world question or a Middle Eastern question. It's a question only if it is causing problems, uh, territorial, all those uh, misconceptions. I wonder if you could talk a little bit uh, whether there is a kind of a relationship uh, with other uh, Arab uh, or Muslim organizations, and if it's not, uh, what are some of the reasons for that? Hmm. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure which which um, Arab organizations you're referring to. Um, there are different. They're just a non-governmental organization. For oh. ex- yeah, I'll tell you from my experience, the textbooks in most Arab world, uh, the Gulf countries and Northern Africa, hardly uh, mention the uh, the Kurdish question. Or when it's it's mentioned recently, it's with the connection of the autonomous areas, uh, or the uh, uh, the ideologies, or the the fight for uh, secession and things like that. So it's never been seen. And this is not just the uh, the Kurdish. Uh, uh, issue, but it's also minorities are mistreated throughout the Arab world. So I wonder if there is sort of that kind of uh, uh, work uh, toward uh, forming alliances uh, with working institutions, working class, or uh, students outside uh, the Kurdistan area. Oh, outside the area. Oh, gee, I don't know. I was just about to tell you that that inside, like in the co coach and principals in. In uh, the canton of Chisire are a Kurdish woman and an Arab man, a, sh- a sheikh, who has mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, who is part of a very large tribe. So sh- I think it's called the Shamar tribe there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he regards, he regards this system, he w- at a conference, I was at a conference in December, no, October 2015 in Derek in Rojava, and I heard him say he regards this system as their salvation for the Arab peoples in Syria. That means the word. That's how. That's how it was translated, anyway. I mean, he saw he had very high hopes no, for it. Go, go. Um, sorry, go ahead, please. And I think, and also we, as I said, when we visited people in um, the Assyrian community, uh, especially women, I asked them, "Well, do Assyrian women have the same problems with patriarchy that Kurdish women do?" And they said, "Oh, yes, it's exactly the same. No differences at all." You know, so so that's why that's why I think that um, women are potentially an important force here because they, you know, cross cross ethnicities and cross religions because they they share this this uh, this same really benighted position in the society. Now, so, uh, just going uh, but back I, to but I'm not informed about contacts with with Arab organizations, you know, beyond beyond these generalities. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Janet, going back to Hamoud's question about. Uh, uh, NGOs, basically. Uh, I, I believe uh, not too long ago, uh, during the Turkey's, uh, I guess, coup attempt, etc., uh, Turkey's uh, government closed down somewhere around 200, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. uh, NGOs mm-hmm. relating uh, in some way or another to... Uh, uh, to uh, servicing the communities, not just Kurdish NGOs yeah. uh, mm-hmm. throughout Turkey, yeah. and yeah. obviously Iran yeah. is the same way. So uh, yeah. it, it is something of a concern, and I and I do believe it is uh, the situation in Syria is influencing other countries mm-hmm. as well. Hopefully, in a positive oh, way. I'm, uh, you would know more about that than me. I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> what do you have to say about that? Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, now. Uh, just before we uh, end, I just oh, I also wanted to ask you uh, uh, in in regards uh, to uh, I know this is hypothetical, but how would you uh, how would you think that uh, Murray Bookchin himself would look at the uh, Rojava experience in, in in his eyes? What he would what he would he criticize maybe or accept it or maybe it's evolving something like that maybe. I think he would have been absolutely thrilled. Uh, he worked so hard for so long to try to create this kind of revolutionary movement, and then he died just before he had a chance to see one. And it just, it, the irony of it is, it was perpetually crushing to me. You know, when I when I went to this um, one of the academies, I was told that the students there had just been reading Bookchin just before we came. You know, I mean, and that was just pure coincidence. It's just, it's just, um, uh, he would have been, he would have been thrilled. I think he would have admired the way 
their preparation, which I talked about before, their preparation so that they weren't taken by surprise when the revolutionary movement came. I think they would have, he would have saluted that because that's a big problem that he saw happening in a study of revolutionary history that people weren't ready. I think he would have been impressed by the focus on, on, um, on patriarchy and the liberation of women. I think that was a good, inno- a good innovation, um, that, that Mr. Ojalan made and I think Murray would have, would have appreciated that. Um, I think he would have appreciated the the level of education, of self-education, of the their 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 converse how conversant they are with revolutionary history. He would have been impressed by that. Um, maybe you know it's hard for me to know exactly what criticisms he might have made. It's again the the conundrum there will will be that that I think he would point out that they face is how to keep a bottom up system bottom up because. You know, it's, there can be a tendency through in my various, as one's seen happen so many times in history, for bottom up to become top down. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you, for example, this, you know, you mentioned Soviet before. I mean, those were originally liberatory democratic institutions in Russia, and they existed also in tiers in the Soviet Union, but they, as soon as, when the, once the Bolsheviks came to power, it was like flipping a switch. These bottom up institutions became vessels for top down rule. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, so how to keep the power flowing from the bottom way is about bottom up is a conundrum that I think he would be very interested in how they are handling it. That's what I tried to look at when I was there. Um, I think that they 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 try part of it. Part of what maintains it, or at least has maintained it up until I was there, and presumably afterwards, is is consciousness, uh, commitment to, and understanding that this is that that this is what we need to do, and they have different processes to a process called the platform by which a person um, a, a, a person can be criticized for heavy-handed or authoritarian behavior by the community you know it sounds might sound kind of when i first heard about the platform i thought it sounded kind of maoist because it was sort of involved this kind of self-criticism where people are called out but it's not and here's the difference because under maoism what you would be called out for is your deviation from the party line of the chairman in Rojava, what you're called out for is deviations from the social contract and from all of those beautiful human rights provisions in this very elaborate social contract that has incorporated um, so many of the progressive aspirations, even of the West, that they've never lived up to. You know, and this is this is taken very seriously. The the, the, the different clauses and conditions ensuring uh, the welfare and rights for all all people in, in it's, it's a working document that's used. In cases of conflict and in and, and in, moment, in, in in places where where um, people who are sometimes more active than others are are called to account, so I think that's that became a practice within the PKK. Someone explains the mayor of New Sabin in Turkey explained this to me once. She said, "You know, we have this system called the platform to keep hierarchy from developing," and and I said, "But but yeah, but how does that work? I mean, but like you know." The upper leadership of the PKK isn't subject to that. Like Chemo Bayek, I mean, he doesn't. You don't have to be accountable to a platform. Oh yes, he does. <laughs> she said, "Oh yes, he does." You know, if he's heavy-handed, you know, he's subject. He's he's accountable just as much as anybody else in the PKK. So, you know, there's a tendency because of propaganda to think of to think of that movement and political formations that came out of it as as authoritarian because it's been slurred for so long. Um, and because of, and also because Mr. Oshelon is held in such high regard, rightly so, but they do have internal processes of democracy, and they're well practiced at it, you know, over the years. So, mm-hmm. so I think Bookchin would have been fascinated by that. And, Excellent. No, you know, it was because it was a conundrum that he had trouble si- trying to solve. I think he could have learned something. I think he would have. Been, I think he would have said that the Kurdish movement is writing the next chapter of the book of libertarian revolutionary history. Let's see to that. Now, speaking of books. Now, before we let you go, we need to... Um, okay, consider me a layman. I don't know anything about Bookchin. What book would you have me start with? Okay. Um, the the uh, the book that Murray re- recommended was the Murray Bookchin Reader, which I have to say was edited and compiled by me. Um, it's available from Black Rose Books. He always said that this is the best introduction to his work. I, I think um, Remaking Society, which he wrote as a primer, on his work, it's also very good. It's also available from Black Rose Books. Um, that was written in 1991. Um, people have said the next, the, the, the next generation is also highly regarded. That would be that would be good. Um, 
uh, post in terms of his democratic, his, his early, uh, you know, his, the early development of his ideas. Post-scarcity anarchism is remarkable, and it stands up today, even though it was published in 1971 wow. and consists mainly of essays coming out of the 1960s. In some ways, that is the most crystalline distillation of his, of his thinking, in some ways more than anything that came afterwards. Um, I highly recommend that book, and also the essays in Toward an Ecological Society from the 70s, which Toward an Ecological Society was published in the 80s, in 1980. That's also a very a very good book. Um, the two books that influenced the Kurdish movement the most are Urbanization Without Cities, um, which has uh, been republished a number of times under different titles, but it's still available, again, from Black Rose Books, um, and The Ecology of Freedom, which is his book about hierarchy. He meant that as to be, to be um, you know, he thought sort of thought of himself as doing a critique of hierarchy the way Marx did a critique of capital. That he thought it was, it was about the rise and dissolution of hierarchy. So, and, and, and you know, your, your latest book as well, uh, if you don't. Okay, my book. Uh, well, I, I wrote his biography. It's called Ecology or Catastrophe: Colon, The Life of Murray Bookchin, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. It's an intellectual and political biography. You know, I didn't really go into personal stuff that much because that's not really what's interesting. His legacy is the, the development of these ideas. And and his in, in the political context in which he did them created them so um, I'm I the book has gotten some good reviews and I and I <laughs> of course I recommend it um, made it um, and then um, there's also let's see there's also different uh, uh, websites um, New yes, Compass yes. Press in Norway which is located in no- Norway has done has published a lot of Bookchin's work um as has the institute for social ecology in, in plainfield vermont they have a website i have a blog called bealonbookchin.com where i wrote especially um uh, articles about what i saw when i went to rojava that's where i published those articles that were reprinted frequently mm. include especially in roar magazine yeah let me repeat that one uh beal on bookchin it's b i b i e h l o n B-O-O-K-C-H-I-N.com. Janet, this has been a, a great conversation. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. And, oh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you no, know, we, we should <laughs> definitely have you back on as things continue to develop in the region and also as hopefully Murray Bookchin's work gets better disseminated than it has been heretofore. And uh, as a, a long-life reader of Bookchin, I'm, I'm really delighted and privileged to have had a chance to talk to you about his work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you you very much. It's been a pleasure. Goodbye. Today's show is part of a series of shows from Swana Region Radio Collective Roundtable Discussions on Democratic Confederalism. And as always, the first part and this part will be available on kpfk.org or KPFK Archives. And thank you for listening. This is Neem Ardenlaw from uh, the Swana Region Radio Collective here at KPFK. And don't forget to support your radio station.